Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hello and welcome to another edition of Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We're a podcast going beyond the badge to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and also talk about cases that have impacted their lives. I'm your co-host, Brent Henson. Glad to have you guys along. Today, it's going to be a fun one because we have a guest who used his three decades of law enforcement experience to help create a first-of-its-kind law enforcement accreditation program in Arizona. And not only that, but he served 25 years with the Novi Police Department, a career that pretty much ran parallel with a guy who runs things around here. That is Michael Warren. You were in Novi. He was in Novi. Coincidence? I think not. You must have been a detective in a former life because you're absolutely correct. But I do have to give a thank you to both you and to Aaron for the timing of the scheduling of this recording. Uh, I have nothing to do with that. Aaron's the guy. Let's just throw this out here. All right. As we're recording this uh, next week, I will actually be at the Arizona Chiefs of Police Conference. And it's kind of fortuitous that we're recording this before, because if Kevin says anything that's out of line, then he and I will handle that face to face next week when we're together. Ooh, fisticuffs. I like that. What happens then in Laughlin stays in Laughlin. I'm just throwing it out there. Wait, so where's the conference at? Is it not in Arizona? It's this is I understand it's going to be the last year that it's not going to be in Arizona. That's confusing. Yeah, yes, because to go to the Arizona Chiefs of Police Conference, I have to fly to Las Vegas, Nevada, then get in a car and drive down to Laughlin, which is right across the river from the state of Arizona. Which it makes sense. That's much more, I guess, attractive to uh, you know folks going to conferences. There's a lot to do in that area. I can, I can see it. What the, happens there? You yeah, know, but it, listen, there's there. a word you left out. Uh, it's cheap. <laughs> and that has a lot to do with logistics when you're putting on a conference. I can say so, but, but you know, when they have those conferences, they don't plan them for Des Moines, Iowa. That's all I'm saying. They they get the destination spots. You know, the only thing that they need to do a better job of, in my opinion, is planning the month of the year in which they occur. Oh, yeah. You know, Arizona, great place to visit. Not any time except for November to February. I can see that. I'm looking forward to the conversation today. Uh, This guy is a lifelong friend. Although when you did say three decades, I got a little little nauseous and a little weak need because that (laughs) if you've been working that long and I know what the minimum working age is, uh, that means that our guest is old. And then if he's old, then then I'm old, too. Yeah, you're roped in there. You guys, your your careers are pretty well parallel there for a while. So you're you're lumped into that that three decades thing. I like to think that I hit the pause button somewhere along the way when it came to my age, but uh, others would disagree with me. So uh, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about our guest, and then we will get the conversation going. All right. Our guest today, as I mentioned before, is a 25-year veteran of the Novi, Michigan Police Department, joining the organization in 1993. Throughout his tenure, he served as a dispatcher, police officer, detective, uniform sergeant, and was appointed training and standard sergeant in 2013. 2018, he joined the Arizona Association Chiefs of Police to develop the Arizona Law Enforcement Accreditation Program. That's a program he was able to take from concept to reality in just three short months. It is our pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Kevin Ray. Thanks for joining us today, Bob. Thank you. Look forward to it. Kay Ray, it is good to see you again, although you and I talk uh, pretty daggone regularly. In fact, we talked yesterday. Yeah, I I actually see you more now than uh, back when I lived in Michigan. Yes. (laughs) Now, uh, Brent, I'm going to throw this out there. I'm on the phone with Kevin yesterday. 
Kevin is married and his lovely wife, Robin, I have known equally as long as I have known Kevin. And I could hear in the background going, Mike, you should start charging him tech support fees for all these phone calls. <laughs> we, we, we're working on some, uh, on some stuff together, but I, I will say, Kevin, and we'll go into our careers here in just a second. It's funny looking back. I can't re- really remember a time where we weren't friends. And I know that there was a, a, a long time before well, we, we became friends, but it seems like the most important part of my life you've been a part of and a big part of. Yeah, and I appreciate that. And that's something that I've really considered over the last couple of weeks as we were leading up to this podcast. And I affectionately call you for, for all of my tech support. Um, you know, there's there's two ways that I could solve a problem. I could either look it up on YouTube or I could call Microsoft. Not Microsoft, <laughs> Microsoft. <laughs> I like that. So... Yeah. So hopefully that hopefully that sticks. Kevin, though, is an incredibly considerate guy, Brent, uh, because uh, you and I are an hour apart and that causes some issues for us sometimes. But Kevin is always very considerate about what time he calls me. Take into consideration because Arizona is one of those places where sometimes he's two hours behind me, but there are other times where he is three hours behind me. Yeah, that throws me off, too, that whole not, you know, going along with the daylight saving time thing. Yeah, we're really one of the only places in the country that actually get it right and don't participate in daylight savings time. But uh, yeah, I do try to be considerate about when I'm calling back to the East Coast. And, uh, you know, my only rule is, is if I'm eating supper, it's too late to call home and don't call me at four in the morning or I'll call you at midnight. So it's <laughs> fair. Fair enough. Now, now Kevin, I'm going to start off with you like I do most of our guests here. You in particular, it's a little bit longer than some of our guests. You're further removed from it. But what what made you decide you wanted to be a cop? What made you decide that that was the career path you wanted? Yeah, you know, my wife jokes all the time that she is, uh, you know, middle-aged and she still doesn't know what she wants to do with her life. And she she always jokes that I knew what I wanted to do since I was five years old. So uh, I actually grew up in the city of Novi. Uh, went all the way through the Novi School District. And it just so happened that one of uh, the Novi police officers lived in my subdivision and uh, actually lived right across the street from the bus stop. His name, believe it or not, was Charlie Brown. Uh, He was a corporal with the Novi Police Department. I would see him all the time coming home in uniform, bringing a squad car home. And I would always get an opportunity either before I got on the bus or after in the afternoon to kind of pick his brain about what being a police officer was all about. So I knew very early on uh, that that was a career that I wanted to pursue. And and so much so that um, uh, his daughter had posted a bunch of pictures on Facebook last week, and I relayed this story to her. When I was going into my senior year of high school, I I told him one day, I, I said, Corporal Brown, I'm in my senior year of high school. When I graduate, I'm going to go immediately to the Detroit Police Department and go to the Detroit Police Academy because they accepted applicants at 18 years old. We'll leave out some colorful language. He said, uh, no, you're going to go to college. You're going to get your bachelor's degree, and you're going to come back and work for the city of Novi, which at the time and even to today are one of the few agencies in the state of Michigan that actually require a bachelor's degree for all their police officers. So naturally, I took his advice, went to Ferris State University, got my bachelor's degree, came back and started working uh, for the city of Novi in 1993. It was the best career advice I had ever gotten. I have no idea what my uh, 
what my career would have looked like had I followed my own juvenile instincts and gone to the Detroit Police Department at the age of 18. Well, well Kevin, I, I don't I don't know how differently your, your career would have looked, uh, but I can say with pretty much certainty uh, that your pension check would have looked a lot different. <laughs> Absolutely. If, they, if, if there would have been one. Yeah. And God bless the, the officers down in Detroit. It, it, Detroit, Michigan is a unique state. Uh, just throwing it out there where if a, a, a jurisdiction gets into such financial distress, the governor can appoint uh, an emergency financial manager and they have the power to void contracts. Uh, Detroit got that way. They went to the file bankruptcy and they, they cut their officers pay by like 40 percent. Uh, they cut their their pensions, people. And that, those are the people I really feel bad for. You know, you got some 80 year old retired cop and all of a sudden you, you cut their pension in half. Well, it's not like they can go out and be gainfully employed easily at that stage. So God bless those folks down in Detroit. Yeah, it was very difficult for them back in the late 90s, early 2000s, where the suburban police departments, they were making four times what the police officers in Detroit were making. The Detroit police officers were making like $30,000 a year. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that's just way too little money for the risk that they have to uh, take on. And so fortunately, um, at the city of Novi, we were able to, in a matter of four or five years, hire six people from the Detroit Police yes. Department and bring them out to Novi. And and they have all served very honorably and, and very long careers. So it, it wasn't a um, it wasn't a swipe at the Detroit Police Department. They do great work with the limited resources that they have. Uh, I just wish that they had the uh, the backing of their political leaders and their residents Absolutely. to really give them the opportunity to make what they're worth. Kevin, I don't know if you know this or not, but Brent is actually a native Michigander. Uh, he actually grew up in Flint. And we were talking before started recording how uh, he, he used to, he's been to Northville Downs. And so we were talking about that a little bit. But, but the three of us here on the podcast, speaking in, in broader terms, We've been to Detroit, desperate as times been in Detroit. There are areas of Detroit that are absolutely beautiful. So some some of the architecture and the buildings down there are absolutely gorgeous. And I, every time I see those things, I think to myself, man, what if we could just turn it around? You know, what 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 if, what if we could make the investment where it's a safe place for everyone to live, not not just in certain little pockets. But it's hard to get to that point if law enforcement doesn't have the resources necessary, if the educational system doesn't have the resources necessary to produce that type of outcome. Well, you're absolutely right. If you look at the the city of Detroit as a whole, nationally gets a bad reputation because of, you know, high murder rates and violent crime rates and things like that. But if you look at the city of the whole, the downtown area, beautiful. The stadium area, very safe. Greek down Wayne State University area, very safe, uh, very beautiful. The problem is, is that has not resonated throughout the neighborhoods in the city of Detroit. And uh, a lot of that has to do with the number of people that have moved out of the city of Detroit, moved out of those neighborhoods. So now you may have one house on a block that's occupied, but you still have to provide city services to that one resident. And so if there was a way to get those residents to move into more populated areas and service those areas, 
uh, I think that they would be a lot better off. But some of the financial challenges that they've had over the last 25 years has been a result of people moving out of the city and only leaving one or two occupied houses per block. But because realistically, the city is a uh, is a city that is built infrastructure wise for a couple million people, but you only have a few hundred thousand that live there. But the, all those things still have to be maintained. The water lines still have to be maintained. The roads have to be maintained. The trash it, has to be picked yes, up. Yes, it just it becomes very, very expensive for a shrinking tax base. Yeah, Much like Flint, it's a General Motors thing. At least part of it is that when GM moved out, a lot of people went with it, and then you know, you're know you left with a, an area that's not very populated. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah as a matter of fact, my wife, uh, all of her family, and she grew up just north of Flint, and her dad was a millwright at Buick for 42 years. Uh, and once they closed down Buick City in Flint, uh, that kind of led to the demise of, of the city of Flint. But, uh, hey, Michiganders are very proud people. You know, they don't want any pity. They just want to uh, make things better for themselves and their families. Absolutely. So speaking of making things better, you have this plan. You're going to go to Fair State. Uh, you're going to have a law enforcement career uh, in, in Novi, and, and you, you accomplish that. And, and you and I, another similarity, is both of us started off in dispatch. And so I would be, I would be remiss here. If I didn't uh, give a shout out to a couple people that you and I work with frequently while we were in dispatch, uh, Tim Walton, uh, who, who is a police officer now uh, in South Lyon, Barb, uh, it was Barb here, and now I believe it's uh, Barb Bennett. We worked many an afternoon shift together, but I, I try to explain to people some of the unique challenges that dispatchers face. And I don't know how it was for you, Kevin, but one of the things I struggled with was the lack of closure. Do you take this hot call coming in, someone screaming, they're being assaulted, uh, someone is having a medical emergency, they're not breathing, whatever the case may be, and you handle the initial gathering of information, you put it out over the radio, and hopefully, hopefully somebody comes in and tells you what the, what the, the end result of that call was. And I really struggled with that piece right there because I wanted to be a part of the solution. And I know we were, but you just didn't see the solution. Yeah, I agree. That's a very frustrating part for for any dispatcher, any communications personnel is, you know, it's one thing to uh, to be on scene and try to create some type of order out of the chaos. But it's another thing to be partially removed from the scene but you still have to hear the disorder and chaos that's going on, but there's nothing you can do about it other than send people to help. And so our time in dispatch was very well spent. Those four years gave me really a much bigger look at what police work was all about. So when it was time to go to the academy, I think that we were more prepared than your average academy cadet. Now, now, Brent, this this may seem a little bit weird, but one of the things that brand new officers often struggle with when they get on FTO is talking on the radio. It can be very intimidating getting on a radio and talking, knowing that that not only are your folks listening, but 
surrounding agencies are listening as well. Yeah, I worked at a grocery store and I had to get on the intercom to say, you know, we have a cleanup <laughs> on aisle seven. And I was nervous about that. So I can't imagine what it's it, like. It, it's so crazy. Uh, but but Kevin, I think will remember this. And, and you may remember this incident too, Brent. Wixom is, is one of our borders. At the time, we, uh, we dispatched for the Wixom Police Department and they actually had a gunman come on uh, to the site and, and started shooting and, and killed the plant manager and had gone into this this massive building. I know you've seen the, the auto plant uh, buildings there, Brent. It's huge and, and you don't know where he's at. And we had some dispatchers working and as soon as I heard about it, I go in. Kevin comes in, my man Kevin always looking out for his partners. I will never forget my man comes in and he's got a tray uh, of drinks that are just filled with caffeine. Because we still don't know where the guy's at. We know this is going to be a long haul. And we sit down, we start working this. And Brent, you've worked radio as a DJ. And oftentimes you try to paint word pictures for people. Imagine you've got your officers on that type of scene. And you're hearing one of them say, oh, he just popped out of the the glass part of the factory. And he's firing at the expressway. And all I see is my console. Everybody that's on scene can see a part of the building. They can hear things that we can't. And you as a dispatcher trying to take that information in and turn it from information into intelligence, something that can be acted upon. Kevin, I know you always advocated for this. Dispatchers, they need to get out in the city and see what is going on. Not necessarily going on the hot calls, but getting that visual of what we're talking about on the radio. Hey, if they say that they're northbound on Novi Road at 12 mile, I need to know what that looks like because how populated it is may change what our response, what we're going to send out there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was a big advocate of, um, especially when I became a supervisor, uh, of getting the dispatchers out in the patrol car, uh, you know, a couple times a month, you know, just for two or three hours, not only to you know, get some of that geography that you were talking about. When they do get a call, uh, they're not looking at a map. They can actually picture in their mind what that what that area looks like. But also to build, you know, camaraderie with, with the officers. It's, it's not like you're sitting on the other end of the radio and these are like nameless, faceless people that you're sending into these difficult calls. You know, these are these are friends. These are colleagues. These are people that you care about and you're concerned about. So being able to really forge that bond between the dispatcher and the police officer is really important. The time in dispatch was limited uh, because eventually we were promoted to police officer and we went to Wayne County Regional Police Academy. After I think it was 17 weeks at the time, but after 17 weeks and 12,436 push-ups later, uh, we graduated uh, from the police academy. But, and I think it's funny, one of the things that stuck out to me at the police academy had nothing whatsoever to do with our learning or training. It had to do with that time before morning formation. You know, that morning formation we had, and there was one question that was always asked every single morning. Do you happen to remember what that question was? Yeah, where was Eric Tapia? Yeah, where's Tapia? And uh, Tapia sat beside me and sat behind you in the police academy, right? Because it's all alphabetical order. Tapia ended up getting hired by Novi, but he wasn't hired at the time. But we had to be there really early. 
okay? And we started off with PT, which means you had to be in your PT uniform. And every single day, he showed up with like two minutes to spare, but what uniform was he wearing? He was wearing his regular class uniform. Except for the white socks. You had to wear white socks at PT. You had to wear colored socks in class. That's the only part of his PT uniform that he had pre-positioned on his body. And every single day, every single day, we wondered how many push-ups Eric Tapia was going to cost us because and we could see him. You couldn't see necessarily Eric Tapia because it was dark in the morning. All you could see as he ran across the parking lot were these flashes of white from his socks as he's running across there trying to make it in time. You said earlier 12,000 push-ups. We probably would have only done about six, um, but we did another <laughs> six yes. for Tapia. Yes, exactly. Listen, there's some you know you're going to get no matter what you do, right? That's right. But, but there were some that were attributed to one person and one person only. And mm-hmm. then he ends up getting hired by Nova, and the three of us ended up going through the FTO program together. Eric retired recently. It's so much fun when you see people like that, that you have those shared experiences with. When you look back on your experience, and we talked about this uh, a couple times, when when you look back over your career, and for my listeners out there, I want you to understand that Kevin did some super high quality work. Kevin served not only as a police officer, he served as a detective, he served as a supervisor. He got our agency through the accreditation process, not just one, but twice. He's done some incredible work. So when I asked Kevin this question, I was a little surprised by his answer. And I asked Kevin, what call was it? What what incident, what case was it that had tremendous impact on you? Your answer, I don't want to say it's a routine type call, but the reality is we handle a lot of this type calls in law enforcement. So why don't you talk us through this incident that made such an impact on you? Yeah, so there's a few that come to mind. But when you and I were talking, the one that immediately popped into my mind is, I mean, we all go on hot calls. We all go on death investigations, homicide scenes, uh, bank robberies, other armed robberies. Uh, you know, that that's all good stuff. And you remember those calls. You remember those calls for the rest of your life. I, I remember... Every death investigation scene I've ever been on, I can remember the position of the body and I can remember details about those death investigations that I've been on. But the one that really stood out was there was a woman that was married to a very influential deacon in the local church. He was a very uh, high profile guy and he had been both physically and mentally abusing her for years. Finally, one day, she got the courage to come into the police department. And I got assigned the call because it was in the area that I was working. And so I sat down and I talked to this lady for hours. Come to find out, I was able to build enough probable cause to actually go up and make an arrest of her husband. What that did was that bought her enough time to get out of that situation. And again, those domestic situations are something that police officers go on every day, but it's the ones that you can make a difference, give them the space and the opportunity to 
go to a shelter, get out of that situation, take the kids with them, and, and really kind of set her up for success in the future by getting her out of that situation. There's no doubt in my mind that, that the abuse would have continued uh, had she stayed. You and I, we worked with some old cops who, in retrospect, now they, they were, when I was calling them old cops, they're younger than you and I are right now. But when, when they would talk about responding to domestics in the old days, that was the, the days before domestic violence laws, where, where in order to make an arrest, a misdemeanor arrest, the misdemeanor had to occur in your presence. Very rarely do these domestic assaults occur in the presence of the officer. And, and they would talk about how you would go and they, they would try to goad the man into taking a swing at them because if the man did that you know then they can arrest him for that and they can provide that safety for uh the female and i listen folks i know that males can be abused but we're speaking in generalities generally speaking females tend to be the victims on these types of calls oftentimes kevin and, and i'm guilty of this whenever we would respond on a domestic and, and i would even go so far to say when we responded on a domestic that was a lobby call because that means it's not ongoing. You know, it's probably a late report. Hey, she's probably coming in to report something from two weeks ago. It oftentimes put me in a bad mood before I even got there. So how was it that you were able to spend that amount of time with this lady in order to get enough information to do what needed to be done legally and for her? Yeah, well, I guess I just uh, have the dispatchers to thank for that because they gave me the opportunity. You know, they took calls that were in my district and gave them to other officers to take. And also, you know, kudos to my supervisors at the time who realized the significance of, uh, of the case, not only from a safety perspective uh, for this woman and her children, but also uh, the high profile nature of the suspect. I, I really have them to thank, and she was able to get out of that situation, and, and literally every year on the day that she came in to make the initial complaint, she would call me. She would come into the police department. I, I actually ran into her one time. I stopped her for speeding, and she's <laughs> like, you don't remember me, do you? I go, yeah, you're the one that sends me a card every year thanking me. So uh, just as much as, as we hope to make a difference in people's lives. People remember that because, you know, I used to tell my officers all the time when I was a supervisor that people don't call the police to tell them that they're having a good day. They call the police on their worst day. They call the police when they need help, not when they think they need help. Well, we're going to talk uh, about domestic violence in, in generalities here, uh, because you said some uh, some things uh, in this story that stuck out to me. Oftentimes, the presence of children in, in a relationship will often give a victim pause in reporting the violence. I, I'm pretty sure that you saw it. You know, th there's this dual role that the suspect, the assailant plays. It's not just partner or husband or wife, whatever the case may be, but they're also parent co-caregiver. Why, why would kids then make it? I mean, because we want to protect our kids. Why, why would that cause somebody to hesitate to call the police or, or to seek help for these things? Yeah, because they don't leave bad situations because 
of their kids and they don't want their kids to be um, subjected to a lot of the rhetoric that goes along with one spouse leaving the home or another spouse being arrested for domestic violence. Even after this uh, suspect was released, you know, I still had to go back up there a couple more times because he was trying to you know, get to the kids and things like that. So, so the kids can often be used as, as a weapon by one parent against another. For our listeners, I encourage you, I encourage you to pay more attention to the news. In, in some cases, they will exact revenge against their partner by taking the kids, you know, kidnapping the kids. Or, But there are times in extreme cases where they will actually cause the death. They will kill their kids in order to get back at their partner. And and I just can't, I I can't wrap my head around that. Yeah. I just had, um, just last month, a friend of mine, uh, from college, when I went to Ferris, his daughter had five kids and she was involved in a murder suicide where her boyfriend uh, had uh, had killed her and none of the kids killed her and then killed himself and so now this this friend of mine from college is 55 years old and he's raising his five grandkids you know it, it's bad enough if you call and report the domestic violence and, and one parent's taken away and now you're left with one in that case right there man both parents are gone both parents are gone and none of us have a crystal ball that we can look at. So, well, you know what, if there had been earlier intervention, perhaps it hadn't have gotten to that point. But the truth of the matter is, it's more likely that it wouldn't have gotten to that point if there had been some type of early intervention in that, that troubled relationship. Yeah. And that's why I really encourage any of the police officers that are listening to really take that part of your job seriously. I mean, you're, you're part of being, um, the warrior is important when when it comes time to to exert your influence. The warrior mindset's important, but at the end of the day, uh, you're a guardian of the community as well. So you have to really balance those two roles. And uh, being a guardian of the community means that if somebody's reaching out for help, you need to understand that they're not reaching out for help because because it's Tuesday. They're reaching out for help because. They need help, and you need to listen to their concerns. If you can do something about it to make their situation better, that's your job. You need to do it. You mentioned, you said something earlier about, uh, you know, the victim coming up to you and saying, do you remember me? How often does that happen to you guys where you run into somebody that you have helped throughout your career and they recognize you and they say, do you remember me? Does that happen often? Yeah, it happens. Uh, It happens a lot because, you know, if you think about it, the only contact that a citizen has with the police department is maybe if they're stopped for a traffic violation or if you respond to a call to their house. And nine times out of 10, you stop that person and you will not remember who they are by the end of your shift. But the actions that you took on that traffic stop will be a reminder for them for the rest of their life. So it it happens very frequently. I'm not afraid to admit that People say that to me all the time, and I say, no, I don't remember you. How did we meet? And then they tell me the story back, and then that might jar my memory. But, yeah, it it happens pretty frequently that people remember me more than I remember people. 
Well, and then another thing that you, you talked about was the, the assailant in this case was a high profile guy that, that he held a position of respect and authority uh, in the church that they attended. But it doesn't necessarily have to be in a church. In fact, uh, just within the past couple of weeks uh, down in Ohio, there was a deputy who was killed by her husband, who also was a deputy. Oftentimes, whenever there is any type of high profile aspect of the case or if there is a livelihood aspect of the case that is another thing that can give someone pause in reporting this she was reluctant because she she enjoyed her church she enjoyed the relationships she, she had at church i can't imagine what it must was been like for this deputy down in ohio because they they worked these were they responded to domestics you know and it ended up uh, costing her her life so why are we as human beings so reluctant to, to admit that we've been a victim of something? Because it's not like your victim there didn't do anything wrong, but it was almost shameful to her what was going on to her. Yeah, it was. And that was probably the biggest barrier to her coming into the police department to report it to begin with. You know, I, I do remember her. Her saying, you know, I shouldn't be here. This isn't right. I shouldn't do this. He's my husband. God put us together, you know, making statements like that. And, and so she was she was trying to make excuses for his mm -hmm. behavior to try to um, I kind of lessen her guilt of coming into the police department and reporting it. But she didn't see the situation for what it was. She needed an outside objective third party to see the situation for what it really was and to uh, get her help to get out of that situation. Uh, I, for one, am thankful that you were the one that took that, uh, because if we're honest with each other, officers handle things differently. Uh, the same officer may handle it differently on a different day, depending on what else is going on. Uh, you know, thankfully that your supervisors and your, uh, the dispatchers that were on duty that day allowed you the time to do what was necessary uh, for that case. Because, uh, Kevin, it had, it, it had to be incredibly reassuring to you every year when you would get that thank you saying thank you for making a difference in my life, because it's just that reminder that it doesn't. What the good you're doing isn't always readily uh, apparent, but it doesn't mean that you're not doing good. Yeah, it did. It did uh, feel good. And that's why, you know, this incident happened in, in 1998. And, and I still remember it now in 2023. So, you know, whenever you can make a difference in people's lives, that's what's really important. I mean, all, all the other stuff is, is important, you know, but you go to an accident scene. And then it may be a 16-year-old driver who just got their driver's license and and this is their first collision and and they're traumatized. Just being able to be there to make a difference in people's lives and follow up a couple days later with a phone call. Hey, just checking on you to make sure you're okay. That yep. makes all the difference in the world. Absolutely. Because Kevin was such a, a, a go-getter, he did end up uh, becoming a detective did some great work there. And then because he's not only does great work, he's also a smart guy. He got promoted. One of the things I wanted to talk to you now about was your role in training and standards, specifically as it relates to being the accreditation manager. Uh, for those who maybe aren't aware of what that is, what, what is accreditation all about? 
and I always say the word wrong, it's accreditation, but I can't get my tongue to work at accreditation. It is accreditation. Yeah, um, accreditation is making sure that you are following a set of best practices for the safe, efficient, effective, non-discriminatory delivery of professional law enforcement services. I think I've said that before. No, it sounds like you may have given that spiel a time or two. Yeah. So what it means is we have a set of standards, um, whether it is um, a state level accreditation program or whether it's the national CALEA accreditation program. We have a set of standards of best practices that we think are germane to all police departments, either in the state or across the nation. Uh, And we determine that if agencies put these standards in their policy manual and then show proof that they're actually following their policy, that it's going to make them more effective and efficient. And it's also going to decrease their liability uh, in the future because officers are following their policy. They're not just making stuff up as they go along. Would it be safe to say that the process is designed to ensure that agencies aren't just saying that they're doing all these things right they actually have to show proof that they're doing things right it doesn't matter what the policy says it matters what you do oh absolutely you know if you look at some of the high profile incidents that have occurred across the country they typically come from agencies that have not held any type of accreditation if you look at uh, 2020 and all the incidents that occurred in the in the state of Minnesota, the state of Minnesota has zero accredited agencies. They do not have a state program and they do not have agencies in the CALEA program. So, so there's no nationwide standard that everyone has to adhere to? There is not. I mean, we can... Hmm. We can go into semantics. Um, we, can, <laughs> yes. we, can, we can go into some of the presidential executive orders. Actually, the uh, Department of Justice, as a result of a presidential executive order last May, May of 22, by President Biden, uh, he directed the Department of Justice to come up with national standards. And the the problem with national standards is the federal government can police the federal government. The federal government can't necessarily police state and local police departments unless they're put under some type of federal review or federal consent decree. And so the way that the federal government is is working through some of these national standards issues is by working through the state accreditation programs and also the national accreditation program to try to make sure that those entities incorporate those national standards into their standards manual. Uh, I want to talk to you about uh, Sergeant Kevin Ray when it came to the accreditation of our agency. How would you describe the workload that was necessary for you to complete in order to make sure that it not only was attained, but it was retained over a course of time? Yeah, so let me just back up a few years to where I was in the Detective Bureau, and I think this is important to, to point out. When I was, in, I was in the Detective Bureau at the same time as Michael Brent, like you said, our career paths mirrored one another. We were both dispatchers. We were both police officers at the same time, went to the academy together. Uh, we were both in the Detective Bureau at the same time. Uh, Michael was working as a task force officer, 
uh, and I was uh, teaching dare in the middle school and elementary schools. So again, you can see kind of the divergence of our career there where, where Michael went more to the uh, warrior side of the aisle and I went more to the guardian side of the aisle. But we were both promoted to, um, to road sergeant within a year of each other. And then Michael was the first training and standard sergeant responsible for all of the training, supervision of our record section, um, and, and everything that, that has to do with that. It was a new position. It was created uh, specifically for Michael in mind. And then after Michael served a few years in that position, I was the second one. And, and to tell you that it's easier to create a position it's easier to be brand new when you start a new position than it is to be the guy that follows the guy that started it so uh so i definitely had my hands full when i went into that role as training and standard sergeant having to follow up on michael and the success that he had in that role but right about the time that that transition was taking place uh we had gone through an extensive study of the police department to figure out the best ways to utilize our staff. And the one item that hadn't been checked off by Michael was accreditation. I think he was a little afraid of that because... That that would be an accurate statement. <laughs> <laughs> because at the, at the time, the National Accreditation Program, CALEA, uh, was 482 standards. And we're not talking about just 482 standards because a lot of standards had multiple bullet points. So you're really talking well over a thousand different data points that we had to meet in our policies. And so with the policy manual that Michael created, I was able to take those standards, develop any new policies that were required, get them signed off by the chief, get them implemented, get people trained on them. Uh, And then we were able to uh, start to develop proofs of compliance showing that not only do we have the policy, but we're actually following the policy. So it's one thing to talk the talk. It's another thing to, to show that you're actually walking uh, the walk. Saying it like that, it sounds like, well, you follow this and this. But as a whole, that's got to be incredibly difficult. You have to get all these standards together, have the chief sign off, and then get people to comply to those standards. I mean, that's a lot of work. Yeah. Right? It, it, it is. And, and like I tell people, you know, a, a lot of times if you're the accreditation manager, you may not be able to find a proof of compliance. Say, for example, you arrest somebody and you put them in the backseat of your car and you seatbelt them in and you bring them to the station. Well, what's missing a lot of the time is the fact that in your report, it doesn't say that you seatbelted them into the back seat. And so cops are very, very good at doing their job. It is the most honorable profession that, that I, I am so fortunate to have been a part of. Cops are very good at doing their job. Cops are very, very bad at documenting what they do. And so fortunately, through some of the training that Michael had already given on report writing, we would do report writing training every year. We saw a lot of benefit of that. Writing good reports is really the most important part of a police officer's job, and and they don't even realize it. You know, the number of times that, that I pulled my firearm out of my holster during my career pales in comparison to the number of times that I picked up this pen and wrote a report. Um, by writing good reports, we saw a lot of positive effects, Michael. We saw our court time go down because yes. 
defense attorneys didn't have anything to challenge in our police reports because the police reports were solid. So there was an economic benefit back to the police department where we could redistribute some of that court time over time and move it to another place. Um, so there was a lot of benefit to the police department to writing good reports. And, and the biggest benefit was in the accreditation process because just like I talked about, you know, the police officers may not write that they seat belted the prisoner into the back seat of the car. That was one of the standards. And so how do you get officers to comply with that? Well, you tell the sergeants, hey, the next time somebody gets arrested, this is what I need the report to say. And it kind of sounds like you're gaming the system a little bit, but what you're doing is you're creating that culture of competence within the organization because the officer is going to be told to put it in his report the next time. The next time he's going to put it in a report and the next time he's going to put it in a report. And then the supervisor is going to start kicking back reports to other officers that don't have it in there. So really by telling them what they need to put in the report to satisfy a standard, they are really creating a culture of competence within the organization. Was that easy to do? Because I got to think, if you've been on the job, let's say, 20 years, and somebody, a young buck such as yourself back in the day, says, uh, you've got to do this now. Well, why? I don't want to do this. I've been doing this the other way my whole career, and it's been working out fine. Why, who, who are you to tell me this? Well, that's why they give supervisors stripes. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, your job as a supervisor is to make sure that you're officers are following the policies and if they're not following the policies it's important that you hold them accountable until they follow those policies now now brent i'm, I'm going to speak selfishly for a second here because you know kevin just talked about some of the benefits uh, of the program from my perspective the biggest benefit is that there are training requirements inside the standards it is much easier to get approval from the administration for certain trainings if you can say, hey, listen, we got to do it or we can't we can't finish the process. Because before that, it was me coming to it and trying to justify it. Well, if it's, if it's mandated, all I got to do is just point to that. And that's all the justification that's needed. So it actually improved the quality of our training. And as a result, it, it improved the quality of our officers. It improved the quality of their actions and their decision making, which just goes back and you get better proofs then for this. So it really is this thing that it tends to build momentum and it just it takes a little bit of time. I mean, Kevin will tell you, uh, he beat uh, his head against the wall uh, many a day trying to get people on board with this. We were fortunate in our agency that there was unwavering support from the top. And as long as you have that consistent support, it makes the job easier. It doesn't make it easy. It makes it easier. And, and then when you've got somebody like Kevin who's dedicated to the process, and I would propose that even more so than being dedicated to the process, Kevin was dedicated to the people in our agency. And he recognized, he, he, he saw ahead, he saw things that other people didn't see. And because he had their best interest at heart, eventually he was able to win them over. Well, and I appreciate that. And you're absolutely right. What the accreditation process ultimately does is it, is it forces those difficult conversations between the supervisor and the police officer. A lot of times you could have supervisors on a 12-hour shift and they go their entire day without seeing every officer that's on their shift. So it, it really forces these these 
difficult conversations between between the supervisor uh, and the patrol officer. And it really, at the end of the day, makes them better supervisors. As a matter of fact, uh, next week, while Michael's at the conference, uh, we have Jack Enter coming in to, to speak to all the Arizona chiefs. And if you've ever heard, or if you've never heard Jack Enter, I would encourage you to. He uh, has a book out there called Challenging the Law Enforcement Organization. And he is the foremost authority on bad supervisors. He and um, Gordon Graham are two of the experts. Uh, you know, my favorite saying by, by Gordon Graham is, if you show me a tragedy in law enforcement today, I'll show you a supervisor not behaving like a supervisor. Uh, so it's really important that this accreditation process helps build some of those bonds and forge some of those difficult conversations between the supervisor and the officer. Kevin, you, you deemed this process to be so important that once you retired from the police department, you took a new job. Brent talked about it in the introduction, uh, but you moved to Arizona and, and you started a new job. So tell us what that new job is all about. Sure, absolutely. So I was uh, sitting at home. I was about a month away from retiring. Like every retired police officer, I told myself, hey, I'm going to take six months or a year off. Uh, we had already planned to move to Arizona. We were building a house. Um, and, and that's another story I'll get into in a minute. But we were building a house, so we had already planned to move to the state of Arizona. But I'm sitting at home one day, and I get a call from Bob Stevenson, who is the executive director of the Michigan Association of Chiefs of Police and a former police chief in the city of Livonia. Uh, it was like 7 o'clock at night, and my phone rang, and I said, why is Chief Stevenson calling me? And as soon as I picked up the phone, he said, Kevin, it's Bob. Are you moving to Arizona still? And I said, yes, sir, I am. He's like, I got the perfect retirement job for you. <laughs> retirement job. I said, okay. I don't think you understand how retirement works. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What retirement job could a guy from Michigan who's never been to Arizona have for me? And I was expecting him to say, you know, chief of police of some small five-person agency up in the White Mountains. And, and, and he said, no, the Arizona Association of Chiefs of Police is... Uh, starting an accreditation program and they need a program director and I think with your experience not only with Kalia but also with the Michigan Chiefs accreditation program that you would be perfect for that role and I said okay thanks for the information I'll check into it so I sent an email off um, I had a couple of uh, zoom meetings with the executive board of the Arizona Chiefs as I was sitting in my office in the city of Novi and uh, the next step in the process was going to be I had to uh, fly out to Arizona for one day, go through an in-person interview, and this was about two weeks before I retired. And so I was kind of lamenting the fact that I had to fly out to Arizona for 24 hours and then fly back. But then uh, I got a phone call from the president of the Arizona Chiefs, and he said, yeah, we can skip that in-person interview. We want to offer you the job now. So I actually had the job with the Arizona Chiefs to build their accreditation program about two weeks before I retired from Novi. Where's that program sitting at now as far as number of agencies involved, that type thing? Yeah, so just a, a quick note about 
our retirement system in the city of Novi. We had to have uh, 25 years of service and be 50 years old. And it just so happened that I turned 50 on June 13th. I had my 25 years on the 14th and I retired on the 15th. So, uh, wow. yeah. It's so almost that, like that was planned. Yes, <laughs> yes. It, it had been planned for about 10 years. You know, you have the retirement countdown on your phone and uh, yeah, so I, I always knew the date that I was going to retire. So uh, we packed up the house. We moved to the state of Arizona. Uh, July 6th was my first meeting with the Arizona Chiefs. And um, when I got to the meeting, they handed me the standards manual and says, here are our standards. Now go build a program around it. Oh, we forgot to tell you during your interview that we want agencies enrolled in the program in September. So I had from uh, July 6th to September 11th um, to kind of build the infrastructure around what an accreditation program looks like. I had the standards. The chiefs had agreed on that. Uh, I I just had to build the infrastructure, the budget, um, everything around that. So we had 12 agencies join the program that September on September 11th, uh, 2018. And uh, now the program has grown to 51 agencies, uh, 24 of which have already received their accreditation. Plus, we're starting to offer different programs, a communication center program, a property and evidence program, because those are areas within the police department that deserve a little more scrutiny. If you're talking about the property room, the easiest way for a police chief to get fired and indicted is if something comes up missing from the property room. Absolutely. So those are the standards that that are really uh, most critical. So we created separate programs just for communications and just for property and evidence. And for anybody who's listening who may still be doubting the value uh, of these types of programs, not just in Arizona, uh, but, but across the nation, uh, in Arizona, Kevin, uh, your operating budget is underwritten in large part by a non-law enforcement organization. Uh, who would that be? That would be the Arizona Municipal Risk Retention Pool. Now, wh- wh- why would why would they do that? Well, they are the insurance company for ninety uh, percent of the agencies in the state of Arizona, and what they have seen. Uh, the executive director came to me last year and said, I, I don't quite know how to tell you this. And I said, what, what is it? He said, last year, the number of lawsuits that they had to defend had decreased and the value of those judgments that were successful had decreased to the point where they were able to return $40 million back to the communities in which they insure not only in cash, but also in reduced premiums. So following these best practice standards will decrease civil liability on the agencies. And we can't say definitively that it is, but it's something that I'm working on proving that it does. I, I have my bachelor's in criminal justice, my master's in public administration, and I'm currently in a doctoral program at Liberty University, and that's going to be the crux of my thesis. I want to prove once and for all definitively whether or not accreditation reduces liability risk. Uh, all I'm going to say is that in our line of work, that's what we call a clue. 
when you see the reduction at the same time that you see the increase in the professional standards uh, of the profession, that then it's something that I think that people need to take notice of. Ke- Kevin has also uh, started his own conference. So we're going to be at Arizona Chiefs next week. I've also been blessed to have been out to two of his conferences uh, that he runs strictly for those involved in the process or who are interested in uh, becoming involved in the process. And Kevin puts on a, a heck of a show. But Kevin, if you could speak to any brand new chief and they're coming into the job and their agency hasn't gone through one of these processes, what piece of advice would you offer them? Uh, do it as quickly as you can. You know, there's a lot of barriers to accreditation. Um, but the agency desire should not be a barrier. Um, you know, going back to our time at Novi, we, we would we would tell people, just like what Brent said, how do you get buy-in from the officers? You know, we would tell officers what to put in the report. And, and, it, and, it, and it really got to a point where, where I had to say, look, not everything bad that happens in your life is a result of accreditation, because we would hear story, we would hear stories all the time. Well, we only have to do this because of accreditation. Well, if accreditation didn't exist, we wouldn't have to do this, or we're only getting accreditation to feed the chief's ego, and and really the officers don't see the big picture, and and as an agency head, you really need to see the big picture. And that's something that uh, was was critically important uh, all the time that, that Michael and I have found success in the city of Novi. Uh, every time we would get promoted, it wasn't because of our ego. It wasn't because of it was because we saw a bigger picture. And, you know, as a police officer, your picture is very narrow it, and, and rightfully so, making sure that you are able to. Uh, make it through to the end of your shift so you can go home and see your family and then you become a supervisor and the picture opens up a little bit more and then it's how do I keep my people safe so they can go home and see their families and then once you get an administration it gets a little bit bigger and it's it's more about how can I protect the agency so that the people that come here and work are safe and can go home and see their family so so the more you get promoted the bigger the picture is, but also the bigger the responsibility is. So so for police officers, when they talk about, you know, they only have to do this because of accreditation, it's just because they don't see the bigger picture as to the benefits that accreditation brings to your agency. So if I were a new chief, well, the first thing I would do is go in and, and meet my staff and, and let them know that, uh, that they'll have my support. And then the second thing would be, Uh, to let them know that we're going to follow a set of best practices that have been proven across the country and across the state of Arizona to really increase their efficiency and effectiveness. So accreditation has gotten kind of a a bad rap, kind of like the city of Detroit when we talked about earlier. Accreditation is really a a time-proven method of proving that you're running an efficient and effective uh, and non-discriminatory police department. And, And it's a challenge for chiefs, right? Because they don't want an outsider coming into their agency telling them what's wrong with their department, right? So it's really an ego check for the for the administrators as well. But you need to set your ego aside and do what's best for the agency. As we're wrapping things up here, I, I would I would say that I would remind those in positions of authority 
that the higher up you go in an organization, the more it is required of you to look up and outside the organization rather than down and in. You still have to look down and in, but that 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 perspective has to change somewhat. And and I think there also has to be an intentional change in perspective. There's a big difference between I have to do something and I get to do something. If I have to do this because it's required by the standards, that's a lot different than saying, hey, I get to be a part of this process that makes my agency better and it makes my profession better. And as a result, it makes me safer. And I think that if there's a better job of communication that, that's consistent, then, then that's the type of, of mindset that we start to get. Yeah, and a lot of administrators, they're concerned that, you know, that they may have a bad incident um, and that bad incident will affect their accreditation. And I try to tell the chiefs when I talk to them frequently that one bad incident or a couple bad incidents may not affect your accreditation because accreditation is really all about process, right? So do they have processes in place to handle the bad things when they happen? Because bad things are going to happen. We can't avoid that. But do they have processes in place to handle when those bad things happen? And just by way of example, there was an, a large agency in the state of Florida who was accredited, and uh, they had uh, an active shooter at a school, and they had their accreditation removed for a couple of years because of that incident. But that was a systemic failure throughout the entire organization. So there's a difference between you know a, a bad thing happening and you having the processes in place and a systemic failure from the leadership down. Those are the kind of things. So one thing that was different in the state of Arizona that I wasn't quite used to is I come from a state where there are... Uh, 582 police departments in 83 counties, and I moved to the state of Arizona where there's 100 police departments and 15 counties. So um, geographically about the, si the same size, uh, we have 40% of our land mass is tribal land. We have more tribal land in the state of Arizona than any other state in the country, with 18 federally recognized uh, tribal police departments. So that was an adjustment period you know, I would just encourage all, all, all police chiefs to just to just jump in, put your ego to the side. If you have any questions, whether it's about your state or the state of Arizona or even about the national program, feel free to reach out to me at any time. Also, uh, we are fortunate enough to uh, in the state of Arizona to join an organization called AccredNet. And AccredNet is really a federation of all of the accreditation directors from across the country in one organization. And we meet monthly via Zoom and, and once annually in a conference. Uh, but we were fortunate enough to be selected by the International Association of Chiefs of Police to give a presentation at this year's IACP conference in San Diego. And that... That session is called Law Enforcement Accreditation, the Intersection of Effective Policy, Risk Management, Community Policing, and Police Reform. So that really hits the four tenets of accreditation and why you should do that. So uh, if any of your listeners are going to be at IECP in San Diego, come check out our session. It's only an hour, uh, Tuesday, October 17th from 2 p.m. to 3 p.m., in room 6A at the um, San Diego Convention Center. It'll be myself, 
the directors from Ohio, Texas, and North Carolina. And, and folks, for our listeners, I can't recommend highly enough uh, you, you go in there and listening to that uh, and then hanging around after the class to ask questions because the questions are, are going to be what guide you. But Kevin, I, I want to thank you for your service with the city of Novi, but also the service that you are continuing to provide for law enforcement. And, and Brent, as we close here, we also have to give Kevin a, a big thank you because he's uh, primarily responsible for one of our previous guests, Chief Jessup. I was introduced to him through Kevin. Uh, I'm hoping to goodness I get to see him next week at the, the conference because he's a heck of a good guy. And you can always tell where he's at because he's always laughing, which is a good thing because that <laughs> means he's always happy. But uh, Kevin, thanks for coming on with us today, man. I appreciate it. It's good seeing you. Can't wait to see you next week. Look forward to it. I've been sitting here for the past 20 minutes uh, realizing I've been saying accreditation wrong all my life and it's been bugging me. So thank you for pointing that out. And if I can make this quick analogy, it's it's a lot like, so you don't have the most glamorous of, of the jobs, but it's a lot like if I make it like baseball, instead of going out and trying to hit a home run every time, just get on base. Yes. We're just trying to follow this set of standards. If you just do that, you know, you're going to win the game. Yeah, um, that, I, I think that's a good analogy. You know, I may not be playing the game any longer. Um, I may not be supervising or managing the players anymore. Kind of like that owner up in the skybox that uh, that tells the manager what they think the best strategy would be. An ambassador for the game. It sounds like your strategy has uh, worked out well for you and the agencies you've been a part of. And hopefully some folks are listening today and they're like, wow, I got to find out more about what this guy's, uh, what he's really getting into. And we'll put all the uh, contact information where folks can reach out to you and, and find you on LinkedIn or, or what have you. And we'll put that on our website at between the lines of virtualacademy.com. Kevin, thanks so much for taking time to talk with us today. It's, it's really insightful. Thank you so much. I appreciate the time. And Michael, I look forward to uh, seeing you next week at our Arizona conference in Laughlin, Nevada. You're absolutely right. It's the last year. Next year, you're going to be spending a lot more time in the state of Arizona. So there we go. You know, we brought the conference back to state 48 next year. So we're looking forward to it. 